Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVMFM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville, North Carolina. Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI FM out of Taos, New Mexico. If you would like to reach me, Nave at jamesnave.com. That's my email. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd like to remind you we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing chops, get a little bit better with your writing, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to go to start that process. So today I'm on a call with someone I just met and we haven't met in person. For now, though, we're getting to know each other over Zoom. Maria Masacheva, she's been involved in the music world for all her life, and she's a very accomplished musician. She's also a, a teacher, a creativity experimenter, and does all kinds of things in the world of, of art and creativity. She's based in Berlin. So, Maria, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you very much. Hi. Hi, James. So let's begin. I know that you've been playing professionally as a musician all your life. You play the big stages, great grand concerts, and you're very skilled at that. You're also involved in the creativity world, making it happen for people. Why in the world are you so invested in creativity? Why? That's a good question, James. And uh, sometimes I ask it myself. Being a professional musician and professional artist, I realized that sometimes in our world, we are so much involved with our daily routine that we just forget about our creative part. And that is so pity because we can learn so much. We can enrich our lives so much with being in touch with this creative part. Around seven years ago, we decided together with my husband, Georgi Gromov, who is also a pianist, a conductor and a professional coach. We decided to do something to open up more our artistic world, our musical world, and bring it out just to normal people, to share with the beauty of music, to share with this creative part that we are in touch with. So since then, we organized different events online and offline for different audience, for professional musicians, young, prominent students who would like to uh, make their career, or just for music lovers, for art lovers who would like to get inspired. And we would like to open up these all systems and create something unique and understand how other people from different systems get in touch with this creative part and learn from it. You've been in touch with it a long time. I've watched a few of your YouTube videos and you do play classical music at a very high level. That tells me that you didn't start yesterday. You must have known somewhere in your early years 
this was going to be part of your life. So how did you first realize you wanted to carry your musical career to those big, big stages in the great concert halls? How did that start? Well, frankly speaking, I didn't realize it when I was a kid. I started when I was six, and my parents both are musicians, both professional pianists, so I think I had no choice to skip. Around 13, I made a decision to continue and to tied my life professionally with the music. I decided to be a professional musician around 13, 14, when I was 13, 14 years old. Starting from this point, I really felt, and I feel it now, this quite a strong voice inside me that keeps me somehow connected with this creative part and with doing something for others. When you play music at these higher levels, which requires a great deal of training. When you're on the trajectory toward preparing for a large concert, do you find the creativity grows or does it shrink as you're trying to work out all the technical aspects of the music? Well, I would say it's a process when it goes up and down every time. For me, music, it's a kind of a way to explore the world. I have this uh, very good experience inside the music, not working on a technical part, but seeing some ideas from the composers that are in the music, in the musical pieces. Starting probably from the, the age of 15, 16, that was the point of my interest. I was really, really involved in how the life develops through different styles of music, how different composers kept this idea and inspired also different people. So to me, my job was not to make it technically uh, perfect. It was rather to share the idea of the composer and to share my own ideas about the ideas of composer. So when you are playing music, and trying to track those ideas. Could you give us an example of one piece of music that offered you ideas and insights into how you go about functioning in the world? And, and what were those ideas and, and how did that happen? For example, if we can take the Johann Sebastian Bach, which is a very famous composer. So through that kind of music and through, for example, his preludes and fugues, he has the two books of well-tempered clavier, the, the preludes and fugues, the pieces that are there in a different keys. To me, it is not only just the notes, but to me, it's also the connection with the religion that was very strong at that time. And actually, all the keys have also different meaning at that time. Uh, the major tonalities, the major keys, have different meaning from minor keys. And my job was also to know the epoch and the style of the composer, the cultural layer, and somehow make it my own experience and share it through the music. So I feel my job is to be a perfect instrument, such pure and clear that can provide something through 
the music to the audience. The meaning that existed when Bach wrote the pieces, you said it was different then than it is now. The major chords, the minor chords had different messages. What's the difference? What's, what was it then and what is it now? The culture is different. The epoch is different. The, how the time goes is uh, totally different. At that time, in the 7th, 18th century, they didn't have internet. They didn't have such a speed that we have now with uh, rockets, with uh, cars and everything. So everything was actually very different. How we can take this music from different old epochs and make it very actual for our generation and make it as a source and use it as a source of inspiration? That is a great question. How are you able to translate into modern terms with your music ideas that you think fit now? What are those ideas for our time? You know, I think the music always was and probably will be the instrument to share something, not to feel alone in this world. And we say sometimes quite often that we are misunderstood because we use different languages, we use different vocabulary, we use different meaning of the words. But it's not like this in the music. And, uh, you know, the very famous uh, poet Heinrich Heine, he said, where the words stop, the music begins. You mentioned lonely. A lot of people say they're lonely in the world right now. Loneliness. Why do you think loneliness is a topic these days? What do you think is causing that? Or is it overrated? Maybe we're not as lonely as we think. Maybe we think too much about it. I also feel this feeling of loneliness in many people, even when they are in a crowd. Maybe it's a human nature. I think sometimes we lose the connection with some of our part that is actually connected to something greater, that gives us this feeling of union. Music can very... Uh, the music can help very good with it, not to feel lonely, to feel united without any words. And when you play music, do you feel a fullness and a connection with something universal beyond you? Yes, I'm honored to feel this. Not every time, but I know this feeling. And when you... Do your work with your husband. How do you two collaborate together to make your work sing? Well, that is big story <laughs> behind it. <laughs> we play together, four hands, two pianos. We play also as um, Georgi conducts the orchestra and I play as a soloist. So we have different combinations of collaboration. And of course, we run our company, Art Connect. We do together many projects. To us, the key is the conversation. The conversation to understand each other, try, at least try to understand each other. It has been working for 20 years already. So I would say to us, um, 
being both artists, being both coaches and have the same direction of interest is probably something that works very well. So when you do your coaching work, do you separate it from being an artist? Often you said we are artists and then we are coaches as well. What kind of coaching do you do and how does it play out and what do you teach people or how do you encourage them? My direction, I coach artists. I help artists and the people of of, uh, creative professions to build up their career, open up and answer the important questions such as where I am in this world. How do I find my own spot here in this world, in this music or artistic world and so on? I think the identity of the artist is so strong, it appears in my coaching work. Identity as the artist. The people who come to you, do they identify themselves as artists? Do they aspire to identify themselves as artists or where in between, maybe? Very interesting. Sometimes the amateurs, the the people who don't professionally play instruments and play piano, for example, start to feel this creative part in themselves and even say to me during the session, oh, maybe I am an artist in my soul. And that is such a pleasure when the people with whom you work start to know this feeling. How do you work with people who come And they have the feeling and they're amateurs. And I'm an amateur on lots and lots of levels. I love the amateur idea. Just show up for the beauty and the joy of it. When someone wants to make the transition from the joy of play around creativity to the professional level. Now, when you say you're a professional, you perform for large numbers of people. You work with orchestras. Your husband is working with orchestras. You do big shows. That's a high level of professionalism. There are all kinds of levels of professionalism. I know professional musicians who tour around and they play house concerts and they make their living playing house concerts. It's a very different scale. How do you help people understand the relationship between professionalism and creativity? Because there's a big difference in the two, even though they do overlap. When a kid starts to um, read the letters, sometimes it's very hard. And this process, until the kid understands how it works, what does this letter mean, what does that letter mean, and summarize them into simple and then more difficult words, takes time. I think the process when you start from amateur to the professional level is similar to that. You need time, you need interest for that. Of course, the interest is your motivation, the inner motivation. And without it, I would say it doesn't work. And then slow by slow, you can play more difficult pieces, you can analyze pieces and also see some joyful, some some nice ideas, some sad ideas in it and starting to understand the music, not only to feel, but to feel and to understand. It is for me, it's the essence of the life. 
we can uh, feel the joy of life. We can enjoy the life. To, to be a master, we need to understand the life. And that is something similar to what I do in music. I help people to understand the music. Understanding the music and understanding the life. When you understand the life, what is it that you understand about the life? What is that essence? I think it's the knowledge plus the experience, the life experience. When you start seeing the kernel of life, the essence of life, you can start seeing the patterns. For example, in music, there are plenty of patterns hiding in each piece that usually you don't see by people who is not involved or who are not professional. And it is the same in life. We are, as humans, full of patterns, of our own individual behavior patterns, of systemic patterns, of the patterns from our culture, from our parents, from our ancestors. And when you start seeing it in music, it gives you the possibility to see your life from a different perspective and change your strategies in the life, too. So patterns suggest mathematics. Do you find musical patterns have a relationship to mathematical thinking? I do. I do. And actually, it is funny because when I was a kid, everybody said to me, I am not a mathematician. I was not as strong in it, in a math. But somehow during my life, I understood, no, it's not completely true. But just my way of seeing this beauty of patterns and the repetition of it, it's probably different from the school. On your website, you have one video. You're playing for 60,000 people. And you walk out and the place is full. For whatever reason, 60,000 people managed to show up that evening to see the work that you and your collaborators are doing. When you play for that many people, and then you dial it back and you play for a smaller group of people, does the vibe change? Or do you keep the same commitment to just present the language of the composer in a way that will be meaningful for just that one person, regardless of whether it's 60,000, 20,000, or 14 people? I would say the commitment is the same, but the vibe is different. It is similar when you have a class or when you have an interview with one person or you have a group interview with several people. So you somehow need to adjust yourself to the audience. And if you don't do that, then you are in trouble. That means you don't feel the audience so well. With the audience, you always have the feedback. Uh, sometimes I feel I need to give more energy and then I give it. And sometimes I feel, okay, I need to slow the horses and I give it a little bit back. So have you ever been in a situation, I imagine you have, where you lost your momentum in the middle of the whole thing? How did you gain it back? What resources did you draw on to recover your momentum in the middle of a concert? You can't stop. You have to do something. How do you deal with that? That's why we need some kind of technical support and technical perfection that we train every day so many hours. The level of professionalism allows you to go back. But the less professionalism you have, 
the less opportunity to go back into the the flow you have. So are you saying that the more you rehearse, the easier it is to stay in the flow and maybe you don't lose the flow at all? No, I wouldn't say so. I think it's very individual. And I think sometimes many musicians lose the contacts with the flow because they want to be technically perfect. Mm, I would say you need to keep a balance between technical perfection and technical exercises, practicing hours a day with this fresh feeling. When, you, when you're a child, it's kind of innocent sight when you don't know anything about world and you're just curious. So talk a little bit about the ego in all of this. We've touched on identity, touched on the rigor of the rehearsal, the hours of practice. What about the ego? How important is it? How does it engage or not engage in this process of creativity? Where does it belong? I would say the ego, the more ego you have, the less you are in the flow. The ego, to me, prevents you from being in the flow. I think this is quite a problem for the artistic world because everybody think or feel that the artists have a very big ego. Many of them want to be famous. Many of them want a big career. But I think... If you have your own ideas and if you feel that your mission is here to bring music to people, if you feel something bigger than your ego, then there is a possibility to learn how to step away from it at the moment when you step to the stage. And I'm thinking the ego will always be there with us. It really is a matter of how we allow our ego to exist with us because we are our ego, just like we have a soul. We're animated, we're alive, and that animation is coming from some energy form, which includes the ego. So when the ego or the human or the artist gets greedy, I want the cheers of the big crowd. I need this fame. I need the certainty of recognition. That becomes a way of shrinking one's grandeur. When you think of what you're doing in the same way that one might become a flower, I'm just going to bloom out until I'm as big as the sun. Then the ego synchronizes with the whole rhythm of the universe. And then you have the music, metaphorically as well as literally. I completely agree with you. And I say, I would say this is about the focus on what you are focusing right now when you're on a stage or when you're just with your daily routine. You've done a lot of work and you've had a lot of success and you still have a lot more to go. Where are you challenged as an artist? Where do you want to go? And do you think that you might find a way to revise or change the domain you work in? invent something new? And if so, what might that be? I feel a strong will to open up our artistic world in a sense of opening the artistic world to the just people, to allow them to know that we are all humans, but we also have uh, wonderful 
tools and a wonderful instruments how to bring the creativity, how to use it, how to be in a flow. Another goal to me is to open up a little bit other systems in the direction to the artistic world, to, to unite them, so to say. So my mission is to unite people and to connect them through music, through art, through different activities, projects, courses, programs. There are a lot of people out there listening to this. They hear you talk about the work you do and the hours you put in and the successes you've had. They might want to listen in in October to this event. And yet they're thinking, I don't really do that much. I have a family. I am just a person who lives on a street in a house and I come and I go and I enjoy my life. I enjoy my friends. Maybe I do a little painting on the side, but I don't really belong in this world that Maria's in. That's such a, such a charged world. How could I ever be part of that? What do you say to people who are thinking that somewhere in them, they know they want some stimulation, but they're not quite <laughs> sure how to get that. How do we, I'm asking this for myself as well, do we address that? What do you think of in terms of strategy for such a thing? I can use internet or the speakers can have some video recordings trying to invite as many people as possible. But still, I truly believe in the individual initiative. And when people want to make the first step, when the person has this question, what should I do to enrich my life, to live more bright, to have whatever I want to have, then somehow this person finds a way for the source, for the right persons to be around, for the right programs, for the right congress, whether uh, we are there with the Unisono or somebody else. One of the things I like to ask people to inventory their creative moments, not moments when they drew something, creative moments when they noticed something. And what I find when I ask people to do that, even the people who claim, well, I simply have no creative bones in my body, I have nothing to offer. When you ask them to inventory those moments, they start slowly and then they increase their inventory. And the, the least creative person will tell you, especially if they're in love or if they've ever been in love, if you can get them to tell you how they feel about the love they have for whomever, there's an inventory of joy they will be able to talk about for a long time to come. And when I can convince someone their inventory of creative spontaneity, creative engagement is so much bigger than they thought it was. That's when they start to feel like, oh, I can belong with everyone who's doing creative work. Because I know a lot of people who work at high creative levels. And 
most of them, when they're through, they go like, well, would you like to go out and have a coffee? Let's just go talk. Let's get back into the, into the world. And then maybe they come back and do great high creative things, but they're always wanting to get back into the beautiful ordinary where we all dwell and have much in common. Yes, we somehow need to be grounded at the same time and feel this creative part that brings so much joy into the life. Yeah, and when someone starts to think, oh, I could do that. Oh, I have that sensibility. It's really an inventory of one's sensibilities. What brings you delight? What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you at odd moments when something is given back you didn't know you had had in solitude spontaneously and with great joy? So when that happens, people see their potential. And once they see that, they think, does it matter if I'm a professional or not? Probably doesn't. Does it matter that I find joy and can share that joy with somebody else? Absolutely. That is 100% truth. I totally agree. And you can see it in their eyes when they are in the contact with their potential. I think when they feel so, there is no question about am I professional or not, because it doesn't really matter. No, it really doesn't matter. What matters is I, I am being myself. And in that being myself, there's a selfishness, and I use the word selfishness in the best sense of the positive aspects of it. When I embrace myself, when I allow myself to have the awareness, the love, the caring, I then have room to share with other people. I have room to be generous. So I think maybe that's what art actually does. It's a medicine that encourages more and more generosity as we move through the world. What do you think? I think it's also a good and natural way to feel your sensitivity. Because some people say, I'm not sensitive to music or I'm not sensitive to art. Actually, everybody is sensitive. The question is probably something, the life experience, maybe the age, something was made so that the sensitivity is gone. It is always there. And the music and the art gives this opportunity to feel it and to give it back. And then this is the integrity. When you give back, when you take back your creative part, when you take back your sensitivity, your potential, when you are in a good contact with all your parts that were somehow lost in the life, then you have this integrity and do whatever you want and be whatever you want to be. An exercise that I like to ask people to do that will help them understand how quickly they can engage their sensitivity. It's a very simple exercise. I'll ask people, those listening can do this now if you like, while we're still talking. I ask people to just move around the desk that they are sitting at or the environment they're in, and with their eyes open, feel the things around them. I'm doing that right now. I'm moving around. I'm feeling the cord for my microphone. I'm feeling my little mouse over here to my right. And there's a pouch that holds my ink to my left. Interesting. Close your eyes and feel the same environment. 
And what you will notice when you close your eyes and you start to feel the same environment, it's no longer the same environment. Everything you thought was familiar changes. The scale changes, the sense of warm and cool changes, the, the feeling of smooth and rough, it all changes. And your mind absorbs the feeling without the eyes and creates its own painting almost in your psychology. And that will happen to anybody, anywhere, anytime. It's not exclusive to one person. That's your sensitivity. That is your awareness. And that is your natural creative disposition. Oh, great exercise. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's fun to try. And when we think about ourselves as just ordinary people, nothing extraordinary about us, that allows us to all feel like we're part of the rhythm of something actually rather dramatic and extraordinary. We're included in the extraordinary, and yet what we do seems sometimes not all that significant. That contrast, eyes closed, eyes open, significance, insignificance, ordinary, extraordinary, are all at play at the same time. So in your music, coming back to that as we move close to the time for our close, extraordinary, ordinary. How does that work for you when you are doing your music? What's the relationship between those two ideas? There is no difference. It's one. When you are in the flow, there is no black and white. There is no ordinary or extraordinary. There is no bad and good. It's just as it is, and it is one. And that can happen for all of us? I think it happens all the time with us, but we just don't notice because we are too busy with our minds, with our thoughts. We're too busy reacting emotionally on the world. It happens all the time. So in closing, how do we notice that? What do we do to notice it if it is there all the time? If I can suggest one very simple and very difficult exercise at the same time, just for one minute, switch off your mobile phones, sit in a silence, doing nothing, and just feeling what you feel without any attachment to any thoughts and listen to the quietness, listen to this quietude in yourself. It could be very interesting to understand or to explore that. Do you know what is the most important in the music? It's the pauses. It's the moments of silence. During this silence, you can process everything that was before and that is going to be. That is the moment of the presence. The moment of the silence is the moment of the present. Well, that is true. If you think about the infinite, vast universe, there's silence. So much of what we exist in is silent, even though what we are around often has a lot of noise. Well, Maria, on that note, I think this is the perfect time for us to, to close our conversation. I really do appreciate you spending some time talking about your work, the art you practice, the music you practice, and most especially reminding us that the moment of the silence is the moment of the present. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me, James. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Maria Masacheva. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Often on this show, I have poets and writers, and when they appear as guests, I ask them to read their work. Since Maria is a musician, what I'd like to do now is to play a piece of music she and her husband created. It's Rachmaninoff's Suite Number no. 2 for two pianos. It's a waltz. Settle back and enjoy the next six minutes of some beautiful classical music. Thank you. 
And that was Rachmaninoff's Suite Number no. 2 for Two Pianos, a Waltz. I feel good about saying Rachmaninoff's Suite Number no. 2, even though I have to confess I don't know that much about classical music other than I love to listen to it. And when I hear it played, I'm astounded at how much knowledge the musicians like Maria have to bring to the stage in order to make it work. It's really, really complicated. And when I was going through the YouTube videos to pick a piece to play for you, I had the opportunity to watch Maria in action on the big stage. And it's quite something. So if you are interested in seeing what it looks like full tilt as far as you can go on YouTube. And if you Google Maria's name, Maria, M-A-S-Y-C-H-E-V-A, and her husband, George Gromov, G-E-O-R-G-Y-G-R-A-M-O-V, you'll find many YouTube videos of concerts they're playing together, like the Rachmaninoff Suite Number no. 2, which is an amazing thing to watch because they have two grand pianos together and they're which is an amazing thing to watch because they put two grand pianos together Maria's at one end her husband is at the other and they're playing together and even though each piano is synchronized and together each piano also has its own part as well so you get that overlap which is really quite interesting to listen to as you know and quite interesting to watch on the YouTube videos as they play together so clearly as you watch them as I watch them you can see the deep rehearsal, the deep practice they bring to their fluent playing as they move across the keys. Over the years, you've probably watched people do remarkable things like play the classical piano at that high level or other things that require a great deal of skill and competence. And one of the things I think about when I watch Maria play, listen to what she does, I think, well, I could never do such a thing. I don't have that level of skill. And yet, when you pause for a moment and consider what I just said, I can't do that. I don't have that level of skill. I'm accurate in the sense that I can't sit down and play the piano at her level. The question really arises here, what am I able to do at that level? Is there anything that, is there anything I understand so well I can function at the same level Maria functions at? Or to put it another way, do I have skills I've practiced for so long I have an unconscious competence about them? I simply know how to do it, and I'm not really giving it much thought. I can think of two things I do that fit that category of unconscious competence. The first one is something that we all do, and we all have. You have it as much as I have it. We have a fluency in the language we've been speaking since birth. Think about how you talk to your friends. Think about how you interact with people. Think about how fast you have to think when you're asked to work through a problem or asked to give an answer. Sure, you may be a little insecure if you don't think you know the answer. You might be halting in the way you speak. You might stumble around a bit. But mostly when you're comfortable and when you're speaking with people that you trust, you know, you feel like you want to share something with, the language comes easy just like Maria's fingers move across the piano keys. Perhaps there's more than one reason why parents get very excited when they hear their child speak its first word. The first utterance, the first recognizable word that comes out of the child. Sure, parents are excited, and rightfully so. It also may be, going a little deeper into this, the parents have an instinct 
that this is the beginning of their child's fluency. The child will grow and grow and grow, and along with the child's growth, the child's language will evolve, and soon it will be fully formed as your language is now, or as mine is. So here we are, together, sharing a fluency that we all have, and no matter where you travel in the world, people speak the language they were born to speak, they were born into, the native language. There are thousands and thousands of languages, and yet they all share the same thing, the fluency, the unconscious competence. And the second thing I'm thinking of right now that I'm quite fluent in, not everybody has this fluency, but most of us do. I learned how to drive when I was 16 years old, and I've been driving a car ever since. So when you think about what is required to steer a car down the road, it's hard to avoid considering all the complications required to get that car to go 55 miles an hour, to stay on the proper side of the road, to avoid the accidents, to calculate all that is necessary in order to continue the journey, be it a long journey, a thousand miles, or just a short drive into town to do a few errands. I've been driving a car now since I was 16, which is to say I've been driving all my life, and I've covered thousands and thousands, maybe even a million miles. You've maybe covered a million miles in your life as well. If you've been driving all your life, maybe you haven't covered a million miles, but you've covered many thousands of miles. And so the next time you drive, pause for a moment and think about how much is involved in what you're doing. Mathematics, awareness, intuition, skill. Here we are, unconscious competence. You're driving your car in the same way that Maria is playing the piano. It's because you have deep practice. And with deep practice comes a level of skill that seems natural, as if it's been there all along. And yet it hasn't. You had to acquire that level of skill, and you acquired it over a long period of time. It's the time factor that matters here. No matter what it is, if you spend years doing something, years practicing it, at some point you are going to feel as confident and competent as you do speaking a language or driving. The difference between the language you learned to speak as a child and learning how to drive when you were a teenager or later, in both cases, it's a very practical application of this practice. You need to speak the language in order to communicate with the people around you, so you're going to naturally learn it. You don't make a choice. It's not something that you decide to do. It's something that happens. Same thing with driving. It's a little more choice-driven. I'm going to choose to get my driver's license, and yet... In many communities, driving communities, it's a given that you will go ahead and learn how to do that. So it's not so much a personal choice you make, it's almost a collective choice. I need to get around, I need to drive, so I'll go ahead and get my driver's license. And in some ways, when I think about Maria's story, she started to play music when she was a young child. Her family was musical, and so she was introduced to it because it was all around her. She wasn't even introduced to it. She was just born into it, almost like one is born into speaking a language. So her choice was organic. It was holistic. It was natural. She just rose into the music. From there, she's practiced all her life, and when she sits on the stage, her fingers move with great ease. Then there are the categories you decide you would like to learn, and that's when you have to start from scratch, even when you're an adult. I've learned a lot of things over the years. For example, I've learned how to do this podcast. 
I started it eight years ago. That's hardly starting when I'm 16. I was a complete adult. It's taken me about eight years to learn how to do what I'm doing right now. So three to eight years is enough time to really get good at something. It's not a lifetime. You won't be completely, utterly fluent. And yet, does that really matter? What matters is the process. What matters is the commitment. What matters is throwing yourself into whatever it is you want to do. And if you allow the time to work with you over the arc of your commitment, you will discover a sense of, of fluency. It might not be the fluency that one would have after a lifetime of practice like Maria, but it is the fluency that you can acquire. You can enjoy by just being in the commitments that you want to make. And from a broader perspective, what I'm getting at here, I'm getting at the human potential, what we are capable of doing, each one of us. Think of what you've done in your past. Think of all the things that you've accomplished, how capable you are. I think of the same thing for me and the people that I know. So the human potential, what we have as human beings, is vast. And if we allow ourselves to appreciate that range rather than discounting it, the discoveries are remarkable. It doesn't have to be particularly complicated. For example, I just posted a newsletter, the first one of 2024. And instead of thinking of complications, I was thinking of the beautiful ordinary. So here's what I wrote. This morning, when I looked around my room at the bag of walnuts on my counter, the broom against the wall, the guitar case on the floor, my Manfrotto tripod with my phone number taped to its leg, and an uncashed check for $11.25, I thought, the beautiful ordinary. And I went on to say, in 2024, instead of climbing great mountains, why not appreciate the small stones in our gardens, the beautiful ordinary? And the beautiful ordinary ties into what Maria said about silence in music and life. She said, the moment of the silence is the moment of the present. And in the present moment, whatever you look at has the potential to be beautiful. Think about this as we close. If you frame any object in your room with your fingers, make a square and look at the object, and then think of that object as a classic painting. The haphazard things on the counter will suddenly become art objects. If they were rendered in canvas and they'd been hanging there for 400 years, people would walk by and marvel at what you see on your counter right now. So when Maria said there's no difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary, I think she probably has a point. You can make what seems ordinary extraordinary simply by changing your perspective. So as we enter 2024 and we move into this year, here's to changing perspective. Here's to reframing things. Here's to looking at what you think is not anything at all and allowing your imagination to turn it into something remarkable, something extraordinary. The beautiful ordinary is beautiful because... Perhaps all things are extraordinary in this big, wide universe we inhabit in 2024 and beyond. And so, my friends, on that note, I would like to say thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio 
fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. I really appreciate it. They're on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. Robin Collier, same to you. Thanks for managing KCEI in Taos, New Mexico. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd like to remind you we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, you can always join me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, any Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. The door is always open. It's free. And we work for an hour just generating some writing material. You can find the link at my website, jamesnave.com. Just below the fold, you'll see the events page that says Imaginative Storm Saturday Gathering. And I'd like to remind you that I have a couple of workshops, live workshops, on-site sorts of things that are coming up. The first one is an Imaginative Storm Writing Intensive in Taos in April. You can find the link to that at imaginativestorm.com. And the second one is the Lake Eden Writing Retreat with Nicole Brown, Alan Wolf, and yours truly, along with some special guests. That'll be that'll be May 19th through 24th at Lake Eden, which is the site for the Leaf Festival. If you've ever been to the Leaf Festival, you know exactly where it is. So I'm looking forward to both events, and I hope you might be able to attend if you're so inclined. And on that note, I will say thank you ever so much once again for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you come back again sometime soon. Till then, maybe I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.